Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. I'm Cynthia Graber. Nearly 25 years ago, a paper was published about addiction that transformed the field. The director of the U.S. National Institute on Drug Abuse at the time called addiction a, quote, brain disease, and he wrote a paper articulating this position and the agenda that it implied, and it had a huge impact. It led to a focus on researching the brain to understand the mechanisms behind addiction, which could lead to novel treatments, and it meant that the country began to treat addiction as a disease, thus treating it within the medical system and removing the victim-blaming stigma. This vision has never been fully realized, and at the same time, over the years, there's been a pushback against the view of addiction as a brain disease, even within the scientific community. In part, this occurred because research in neuroscience didn't lead to effective treatments as quickly as the field hoped or promised. And in part, says Marcus Heilig, it's because other researchers felt that funding into the neuroscience of addiction meant that other relevant mechanisms, such as social and psychological factors, were perhaps being somewhat neglected. Marcus Heilig is professor of psychiatry and director of the Center for Social and Effective Neuroscience at Linköping University in Sweden. And then on top of that, there was very exciting development within the scientific community where people started researching the mechanisms of choosing between alternative rewards, both in animal models and in humans. But then if you boil it down, it's dangerously close to going back to the old perception, oh, people with drug problems made the wrong choices. And so rather than viewing it as a disease, it becomes, again, potentially an issue about those people being responsible for those choices and therefore why waste taxpayer money on them. To address these concerns, Dr. Heilig and a number of colleagues recently published a review article in the journal Neuropsychopharmacology titled Addiction as a Brain Disease Revised, Why It Still Matters and the Need for Consilience. Dr. Heilig, I can't cover the details of every point and counterpoint in the paper, but I'd like to go through a number of them with you. First, you say that some critics argue that addiction is too fuzzy to be delineated as a disease, that it's too difficult to set a cutoff for who does or doesn't have addiction as a brain disease. What's your response? We've had such a broad notion of substance use disorders, as they are now called in the diagnostic system, that it really captures a hugely diverse population of people. One of the main arguments uh, why addiction should not be viewed as a brain disease or a disease at all is, well, most people spontaneously remit. And of course, if you start out with this extremely broad notion of substance use disorders that captures 12, 13% of the population, 
most of those people will somehow mature out if they have substance use problems when they're young or they will remit because their life circumstances changes. So we need to be very careful what we mean when we say addiction, even though the boundaries are fuzzy. It is pretty clear that there is a population, and that's perhaps closer to around 1%, which is still huge, of people where you see, in many cases, chronic relapsing course, where you see a set of rather characteristic changes in ability to control behavior, in the ability to stop substance use despite negative consequences, in the ability to uh, cap substance use without escalating it to a level where it will become medically harmful or socially harmful. So that category is not harder to delineate, I would say, than the people who come into the healthcare system with various levels of blood sugar. And of course, at the extremes, it's pretty obvious to us which one has diabetes and who does not. But then there is also obviously going to be a a territory in between where the boundary is not obvious. So that's a very, very useful parallel, I think. It made me think of blood pressure, where the question of when blood pressure levels are problematic has changed as our understanding has changed. But to move on to another research subject that certainly has been changing a lot over the past few years, and that's genetics, it seems like there's been pushback about a genetic link to addiction. So I think in terms of the data, there is no lack of clarity. We know now from extensive work that the genetic contribution to the risk of developing addiction runs somewhere between 50 and 75%. Is it polygenic? Of course it is. There is not a single complex disorder where the contribution of genetics is not polygenic. So schizophrenia is perhaps the best example. Very high genetic contribution. Heritability is about 08 And it's still hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of loci in the genome that contribute. So that's no different. And then the final thing is, sometimes the argument gets flipped around. And instead, the argument is, well, sure, there is a genetic uh, contribution to the risk for addiction. But since there is a genetic contribution to all kinds of things, such as political choice actually has a significant Uh, genetic component to it, then the contribution of genetics is not uh, really an argument for a disease nature. And, you know, we clearly acknowledge that, yes, of course, there is a genetic contribution to a number of things that we do not consider as diseases. But at the same time, when there is a genetic contribution to an altered function of the organism, which results in maladaptive behavior, then I am not aware of any other case where you have that constellation of observations where we have not ended up with calling it a disease. There apparently is an argument in the scientific community that I found particularly weak, and it's that you can't do a brain scan for addiction. We've already discussed schizophrenia, and I'd also mention Alzheimer's, and those are two accepted brain diseases for which there's no clear brain scan so far. To us, this is an argument that's just hard to even begin understanding because, as you pointed out, very few neurological or psychiatric disorders can be diagnosed with a pathognomonic, as we call them, brain lesion. Even in the cases where the pathophysiology is completely clear, such as Parkinson's disease, where 
the loss of the dopaminergic neurons is known to be the mechanism and to some extent can be visualized using a SPECT or PET. Even there, you don't base the diagnosis on the brain image because it's fuzzy, it's, it's quantitative. You need to put this together with so many other things. And then it also doesn't acknowledge the ways that brain scans can be useful in identifying pathways for a potential treatment, correct? So that's one of the most important points at this stage and possibly for the foreseeable future, brain imaging is not a diagnostic method. It's a method to identify mechanisms of disease and help us develop an understanding and develop treatments. In the paper, you also discuss the ways in which all of these aspects of the brain come into play with social factors, such as poverty, racism, and marginalization, and how these social factors also have a physical impact on the brain. And you addressed the question of how people with addictive disorders can certainly make good choices, but can more easily be shifted because of the disease into making maladaptive choices. And so having written this comprehensive framing of addiction as a brain disease, what do you hope that scientists and policymakers take away from it? So I guess the hopes fall in two categories. One is on a very practical level, we really emphasize that once we recognize addiction for being a brain disease that compels us to diagnose it and treat it with the best available evidence-based treatments of today, and also to work hard to develop new treatments. In the other category, scientifically, it tells us that we need to reconcile the notion of a pathology of brain circuits with all this new fascinating science of choice, of recovery, and of how social factors impact those choice probabilities. So some of the most fascinating research that is emerging in the basic science, one of our co-authors, for instance, has shown that in animal models, if you allow rat pups to play more, the probability of developing maladaptive addiction-like behaviors as grown-ups is significantly reduced, right? Another colleague of ours have shown that if you provide social rewards, simply an opportunity for social interaction to animals that are busy pressing away to obtain uh, addictive drugs, they will actually stop and, and shift their choices towards those social rewards. So we need to understand those contingency. We need to do the science that allows us to understand how these social factors modifies the function of the brain circuitry. What are the molecules uh, that are mediating those influences? And maybe that'll allow us to develop ways to help people regain the ability to you know, reach a higher probability of making adaptive rather than maladaptive choices. This is the podcast for the journal Neuropsychopharmacology. To read the article discussed in the podcast, go to www.nature.com slash NPP. I'm Cynthia Graber. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 